continue our sermon series in the book of Exodus. We'll be in Exodus chapter 14. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, the Lord will be on the screen behind you. And you can also find the scripture uh, in, in our church app. There's a sermon listening guide so that you can follow along. There's an outline of the scriptures printed there as well. Exodus 14, starting in verse 5. A little bit of a long reading, but a riveting story. A riveting story. Starting in verse 5, the end of the chapter. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the beast. And they said, What is this we have done? That we have let Israel go from serving us. So he made ready his chariots and took his army with him. He took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he pursued the people of Israel while the people of Israel were going out to find him. The Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen and his army, and overtook them in the camp of the sea by Pi-Hararam, in front of Baal the And Pharaoh drew near. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. The Lord said to Moses, Why do you cry to me? Tell the people of Israel to go forward, lift up your staff, and stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. But the people of Israel may go through the sea on dry ground. And I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they shall go in after them, and I will give glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I've got glory over Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them, and a pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud and a darkness. And it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea. And the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. And the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground. The waters came and walled to them on their right hand and on their left. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea, all Pharaoh's forces and chariots and horses. Then the morning walked, the Lord and the pillar of fire and the cloud looked down on the Egyptians' forces and threw the Egyptians' forces into a camp, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, Let us flee from before Israel, so the Lord fight for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand over the sea. That the water may come back upon the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. 
And Moses stretched out his hand over the city, and the sea returned its normal course in the morning of the year. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The water went running and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And all the host of Pharaoh that had fallen down into the sea, not one of them remained. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the sea. The waters being a wall of them on their right hand and on their left. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord. And his servant, Moses. A drunken man got on a bus late one night and he was staggering down the aisle and he sat down next to this elderly woman who was clutching a Bible. And she looked this drunk up and down. He said, I got news for you, mister. You're going straight to hell. The man jumped out of his seat and shouted, Oh man, I'm on the wrong bus again. There are so many superstitions, human sins, transactions, works, simple views of salvation that are a far cry from the salvation of Christ. In a super far cry from salvation described here in Exodus 14. What is salvation? To answer this, we're going to answer three questions. Who accomplished the salvation? How is salvation accomplished? And what is accomplished in salvation? So let's begin with who accomplishes salvation. God answers this question in abundant clarity in verses 5 to 14. Look at verse 5. The mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed towards the people. And then verse 8. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. Pharaoh changed his mind because God changed Pharaoh's mind. Now, why did God change Pharaoh's mind with unleashed one of the world's strongest armies on his people? Look at verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near, people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. God's people were scared to death. And notice how they respond in their fear. Look at verse 12. Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. That first sign of danger, that first sign of discomfort, that first sign of hardship, God's people. Turn back to Egypt. They turn back to Egypt. If salvation were up to God's people, or even partially up to God's people, they would 
turn back to Egypt every time, and they would turn back to the gods of Egypt every time. And you and I are no different. At the first sign of danger, at the first sign of hardship, at the first sign of pain or discomfort, we come to no ways of coping with the broken and sinful world around us that makes life so difficult. God's people turned to what was known in Egypt, even if it was for slavery. It was known. And we did the same. We, we turned to known coping mechanisms. I remember when I was coaching high school football in North Carolina. And uh, the defensive coordinator came up to me when he learned I was in ministry. And he said, Coach, we all have our rights. Which was his way of saying, I need you to understand when I start breaking after we lose the game. Or I need you to understand when I unleash this parade of profanity that would make a sailor blush when we're not doing too well on the field. I need you to understand that. And he was exactly right. He was exactly right. We turn to coping mechanisms. When life is hard, or when hardship hits, or when sin intense, we return to these coping mechanisms. We eat a lot, or we drink a lot, or we shop a lot, or we social media a lot, or we spend a lot, or we engage in sexual immorality a lot. We're no different than this. Whether salvation were up to us, the salvation were up to you, you would choose your coping mechanism every time. You would choose a coping mechanism which is nothing less than a false god, like a false god of Jesus. So back to that question, why did God change Pharaoh's mind? So that the army would be unleashed on God's people, so that his people would be struck with great fear, so that they would desire to go back to Egypt. Why? It was to show his glory, to reveal his glory, not only to Pharaoh and Egypt, but to his people. This salvation didn't belong to them. They were spectators in the battle, not soldiers in the battle. And God was making that abundantly clear. Look at verse, verses 13 and 14. Fear not, stand firm, stand see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see them again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. What's striking is this is God's response to their complaint to want to go back to Egypt. God says, Would you just stand still? And just watch. You're affected. You're not a soldier in this battle. You just watch this salvation unfold. I go to this Old Testament story often because it's well known, but also because it represents what we typically do with Old Testament. And that's the story of David and Goliath. But the common interpretation that comes out of that story is go be like David, go be brave like David and fight for Goliath. The problem is we're not brave like David. 
The problem is, we are the Israelites in their midst, cowering in fear, drinking too much, eating too much, to cope with our fear and anxiety. That's who we are. David's a picture of Christ. The Israelites sat in their midst and watched David fight that battle against Goliath, and the same thing's happening here. God says, would you just be still? Just be quiet, be still, and be quiet. Just watch what I'm about to do. Watch what I'm about to do. Who accomplishes salvation? God and God alone. Second question is, how is salvation accomplished? How is it actually accomplished? Look at verse 19. Then the angel of God, who was going before the host of Israel, moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was a cloud in the darkness, and it lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. Who is the angel of God? Well, the word angel means messenger. This was a messenger of God. But we also learn down in verse 24, where we read, The Lord, in the pillar of fire and cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces. So you've got God himself in the pillar, and you've got the messenger of God in the pillar. There's only one in the Bible who is both God and both messenger or word of God. And John 1 makes that clear. That Jesus Christ is the messenger or word of God, and Jesus Christ is God. That's why many believe here that this angel of God in the pillar is Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity. Before he became human, it was birthed into this world. And that means that what happened here is Jesus Christ went between his people and the evil that was pursuing them to destroy them. What a vivid picture of what Jesus says about himself in John chapter 10. John 10, 7, Jesus says, I am the door of the sheep. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. When Jesus was on earth, sheep and sheep pens were, and shepherds were very common. In the countryside, the way a sheep pen would be built was with stones, large stones. They stacked on top of each other to make a wall. In the closure, it would have one opening or one gate. And it was through this opening that sheep would go in and they would come out. Now, if it was a small sheep pen, then the shepherd himself would sit in the gate or lie across the gate. He would serve as the door. So the sheep could get out, and the wolves could get into the house. Essentially, when a shepherd was laying across the door or the gate, he was sitting over my dead eyes. Over my dead eyes, will you hurt my feet? In this book of Exodus, Pharaoh and his army represent Jesus. 
represents sin and evil. This is pursuing and moving towards death. Sin leads to death. James 1 15 makes it clear. Sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Jesus Christ steps between you and your sin. This speaks to devour you and it speaks to destroy you. He is the good shepherd. So when you see or when you meditate on or think on the cross, when Jesus died, when he as the great shepherd did lay down his life, what you see at the cross is all the fury of sin and all the fury of evil being poured out on Jesus. That he is taking it in your place so that it's not poured out on you. In February of 1941, Maximilian Kolbe was arrested by the Gestapo, which was the secret police in Nazi Germany. He was a Polish priest. And he was arrested and he was taken to Auschwitz into Barracks 14. And it was there in Barracks 14 that uh, he began as a priest, uh, men just pouring out their stories, their lives to him, and he was shepherding them. And he, when they would pour out their stories, he would kind of raise his emaciated arm and he would strike the picture of a cross in his mind, taking Christ's cross, triumph over his enemies in every age. I believe in the end, even in these darkest days in Poland, the cross will triumph over the swastika. I pray I can be faithful to that end. And then one night, one of the prisoners became a fugitive and left there for him. The next morning, there was a lot of tension in camp, and they called all the prisoners out for a roll call. After roll call, they dismissed them all except for Barrett 14, where the one had left. And they made this group of men, uh, this Barrett, stand in the top sun all day long. By evening, they had a man found the fugitive. So one of the commanders got up and screamed and said, The fugitive has not been found. So ten of you are going to die in this place. And they assigned those ten that were chosen to the starvation bunker, which was an awful way to die. Of the ways where the gallows and the gas chambers, starvation bunker meant you wouldn't get water and food until you literally died. And at that moment, that one of the men cried out, My poor children, my wife, what will they do? And there was a man who stepped forward. After, after his father told he stepped forward and he requested to take this man's place in one of the tents to go to the starvation bunker. And the commander ordered And this is something miraculous happened. These men were sent to the starvation bunker, and normally what would be heard in all the barracks around it were howling and, and screaming and fighting and attacking just the people despairing in their last moments as they died, and yet what they began to hear around the starvation bunker were actually, they could faintly hear singing. Because they had a shepherd 
in the bunker with him, leading into the valley of the shadow of death, and pointing into the great shepherd. The man whose life is spared, his name is Francisic, he goes back, he survived often. And for 53 years, you know, he died at the age of 25, he joyfully told that the man who had died Your salvation has been accomplished by me, by God, who died in you. Who accomplished the salvation? God and God. How is salvation accomplished? By the God who is Jesus Christ, who stepped between you and your sins and died in you. Moses stretches out his hand over the sea, the waters part. Israel walks through on dry ground. As Pharaoh's army pursues through the sea, God spots the wheels of the chariot to slow them down. Moses puts his hand back out over the water. The waters return and cover the Egyptians. And we read in verse 28. The waters return and cover the chariots and the horses. Of all the hosts of Pharaoh that had fallen into the sea, not one of them remained. Then verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the sea. Why the emphasis on not one of them remained? Why the emphasis on the Israelites saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore? It was to show the totality and the finality of God's death. That he had conquered the enemy. That Israel's former slave master was dead. They didn't have to listen to Pharaoh ever again. They didn't have to obey Pharaoh ever just before Jesus breathed his last breath on the cross, he said, it is finished. None of your sins remain. And all of your false gods lay dead on the shore. You don't have to answer their demands ever again. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 11, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Where Satan tempts you to despair by telling you you're full of shame and guilt and you're unworthy, you don't have to listen. When you aren't getting your production or sales goals at work and you're being told you're a failure, you don't have to listen. When you're being told you aren't beautiful because your body doesn't measure up to the magazine cover or social media, you don't have to listen. 
When you are told that you will finally get to live a comfortable, enjoyable, and pleasurable life once you make this amount of money, please don't ask me. When you are told that you have to compromise your standards to be accepted by a certain group of people or to be accepted by a boyfriend or a girlfriend, you don't have to listen. None of your sin remains, and all of these false gods lay dead on the shore. Count yourself dead to sin in the life of God in Christ Jesus. Your sin is defeated. Your false gods are defeated. And, and you have a new master. You have a new master. Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. That means revered, honored the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. No longer slaves to sin, as Paul said in Romans 6, but slaves to righteousness. Sin is no longer your master. Christ is. On January 28, 1945, World War II was coming to a close. And 141 elite army rangers liberated some 500 prisoners of war in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. It was near a Kabbalah farm in the Philippines. The prisoners were in awful condition. Physically, they were in bad condition. Emotionally, they were in awful condition. And so before the rangers actually arrived, the, the, the Japanese guard units were, were leaving. They were fleeing because Japan was pulling out of the Philippines, out of the Philippines, out of the Philippines, Philippines. They were pulling out. And, and so these POWs that were left were confused. They didn't know what to think. Are we really free? Are we not free? They had been so... Um, Teams and, and, and made objects of deceit for so long they didn't know what or who to believe. And it was at that point that the army rangers came in with furious force. And this really threw them into a panic because they didn't know at that point is it the army rangers, is it the Japanese guards, are we really free? Is it a trick? Is it a trap? So one of the prisoners, Captain Burbank, at this point he's a friendly blind because of vitamin deficiency. So when the army rangers came in, they got near him. He, he couldn't make it out. He didn't know who they were, so he wouldn't run. And one of the rangers said, What's wrong with you? Don't you want to be free? And uh, Burke Bank was from Alabama. And so he recognized the southern accent of this army ranger. When he recognized the southern accent, he got a smile on his face and he stood up and he began his journey to freedom. Christ may not have a southern accent, but he has a distinct voice. What is distinct about Christ's voice? Christ brings conviction but never condemnation. And those two 
can seem very similar and hard to distinguish, but they are very different. Condemnation comes from the voice of the devil, and it does three things. It produces a low-grade fever of ongoing shame. And it steals joy. And it leaves you in a place of despair or hopelessness. Conviction comes from the voice of Christ, and it does just the opposite. So rather than giving you a low-grade fever of ongoing shame, conviction is specific. Not vague, it's specific. And it leads you to a clear path of repentance. Conviction doesn't steal joy, it actually produces joy as it reminds you who has accomplished your salvation. And conviction from the voice of Christ does not lead to the place of despair, it actually causes you to rejoice. And his book, Kyle, the Shepherd, looks at Psalm 23, Philip Keller describes his experience as a shepherd in East Africa. And he describes the adjacent spot of land next to him, which was run by a shepherd as well. But it was a, a plot of land that was rented out to a tenant shepherd. And he says the sheep were not taking good care of at all. Says the, the land was overgrazed, it was eaten down to the ground, the sheep were thin, they were emaciated, they were diseased with parasites, they were attacked by wild animals, and what he remembers is those sheep coming up against the fence, kind of blankly staring out at Philip Keller's path to the sheep, which was green, and the sheep were healthy. He said, as well as that chance, they were longing to be delivered from their abusive shepherds so that they could come along with him. What a picture of what sin and idolatry are. Sin and idolatry is what brings destruction. Christ as the good shepherd brings life. Is Jesus Christ your shepherd today? If not, what is keeping you from trusting him and following him? And if you are in Christ and Christ is your shepherd, are you listening to his voice and not to the voice of lies and of condemnation? Salvation is a sound. We see it. We hear it. And yet, we confess how often we don't listen to your voice, to the voice of your son. How often we listen to the lies of condemnation. 
So, Father, we need your Holy Spirit to draw our hearts back to the good church of Jesus, to hear his voice, his truth that produces joy and hope. Father, I pray for those here who maybe have never trusted the good church, have never personally put their faith in Christ. Would you draw them to that place today? That they would come into the green pastures of the kingdom, where there's life and joy, and where they see the great price that you paid, Jesus, to accomplish their salvation. And they see that you set between them and their sin. Our Father, as we close now by singing with you, give us the strength to sing with great joy. The salvation you have accomplished for us. We pray this all in Christ's name.